Hello, and welcome to Nevermind the Pain Points, a podcast dedicated to helping you unlock your business challenges. Pulling on our network of clients, partners, experienced employees, and industry experts, we wanted to share with you our views and opinions on common business challenges. As a consulting firm that deals with these pain points on a daily basis, we thought we were well-placed to give insights on addressing these challenges. On today's episode, Matt Chung, the CEO here at Clarisys, will be discussing with Kennedy Warwick, the former head of customer data Refinitiv, the challenges of enterprise data governance. Hi, I'm Matt. We're here for another episode of the Clarisys podcast, and I've got Kennedy Warwick with me, who is the head of customer data for Refinitiv. Kennedy, do you want to do a little introduction for our listeners? Well, as you said, I'm formerly head of Oh, okay. Customer data for Affinity. Took the package in January. But um, yeah, formerly head of the customer data for what is now referred to be for the FNR and spent a year and a half as the enterprise process owner for data for the whole of Thomson Reuters prior to the sale of the FNR business. I think the question that most people ask us when talking about data is who should own data? Should it be the business or should it be IT? Absolutely not IT. I tend to agree, but perhaps you'd like to elaborate on uh, on your rationale for that. The major reason is, is that IT have no skin in the game, if that's the right way to put it, around the quality of the data. IT see data as a place where people store data, i.e. databases or MDM solutions, whatever it might be, spreadsheets. They have no connection with the data. They don't understand the business elements associated with it, why it's so important. It's seen as a commodity that needs to be pushed between complex architectures usually by interfaces that don't work properly and they don't understand so <laughs> or haven't documented properly so nobody understands them so that's my immediate rationale i think it's the fact that they have no commitment to the data it's not part of their remit per se and so if it's not it owning the data within the rest of the business who should the the chief data officer or the person who owns data governance roll up to well depending if it's the person who owns data governance and i'm not dismissing the roles of people who are responsible for data governance at a management level that role probably should, should roll up into the chief data officer if that's the structure of the organization i think the chief data officer should report to the president ceo etc cetera, etc cetera, at that level of the organization because there's not many assets within an organization that are more important today than the core data within the organization be it generated through sales and marketing be it generated through order management be it generated through product, whatever it might be, it's a key asset and only becoming more and more key to the future of organizations. Which companies should our listeners look to for those who are really doing a great job of looking after their data? Well, that's a good question. I think there are media organizations out there that are doing a very good job. And I think they've embraced the connection between core data within their organization and how they are going to drive forward the customer experience for that organization or through their products. And what do you mean by core data? Just for the benefit of our listeners. Core data can be, it's not necessarily one set of attributes, but let's take customer data, for example. So Refinitiv, customer data is enormously important for them for a multitude of different reasons. And that data and the processes that, that absorb that data are owned through different elements of the organization, whether it be through sales and marketing, whether it be through lead gen, whether it be through product, and therefore, I guess that's one element. And that can be something as simple as, you know, core information about the, the customer themselves, you know, names, addresses, billing contacts for order management perspective or for bill invoice generation, 
or it could be around um, key influences within the organization held in CRM systems. There are also many other forms of data which uh, could be seen as being key, HR data, for example, or I can't think of another one right now. <laughs> in product data is quite important, isn't it? In product data, or as in usage? Yeah. How a subscriber, for want of a better word, interacts with your product and what, and I hate this phrase, exhaust you get from that usage. Yeah, that's come up more and more recently, actually. And how you use that data to drive better customer experience and potentially how you segment your customers based on the way that they're using the product. And I'm not sure that in the B2B space that people have really started to understand the opportunity properly yet. I think in B2C, there's much more insight Certainly, for example, from a web traffic point of view of heat maps of where people are going on your website, yeah. so you can optimize the website. I'm not sure that many B2B organizations are treating it in the same way yet or have been able to successfully do so yet. And why do we think that is? I would say that a multitude of reasons. One being that B2B is slightly slower at times to look at the end user rather than treating the, the business as the end customer, thinking about the needs of the actual end user. I think potentially also it's more difficult to apply or to move as rapidly with the legacy state of products that B2B has to put in the tracking technique. So if you're Amazon or somebody, you're iterating your website every day yeah. and you've built it on a new technology stack, it's relatively straightforward to add a new tracking capability. But if you're, I don't know, Refinitiv or Goldman Sachs or someone and you're looking at your trading platform or you're looking at your product that people are using it might be written on technology that has evolved over the last 15 years and it may be more difficult to implement the tracking technology i don't know i'm postulating i think you're probably right i think that but surely if you're refinitive or goldman sachs or one of those guys then as you develop products or as you move these products to these new technologies then surely you take that opportunity to build what you need to understand how your customers use those products going forward into those so the fact of the matter is, is that you can't sit there and say, well, well, as far as I'm concerned, you can't sit there as a B2B and go, well, we couldn't do it in the past because the technology wouldn't let us do it. So therefore, we're going to keep developing products in this manner on this platform. So at some point, we basically become dinosaurs and people move, we lose customers because we can't provide them with the in-product experience that they're expecting and the sophisticated user will expect to have going forward. I think you're right. I think also that our expectations of customer experience are influenced by how we deal with B2C organizations who have moved our, the boundary along, right? So you, you just expect stuff to work. And yeah. it's not acceptable for it to kind of be a bit clunky anymore. But that's interesting, right? Because I think if we had this conversation five, ten years ago, then the conversation would be much more about, well, my buyer customer experience in a B2B organization is what I'm really orientated around because that's where I see more money to be made and, and more opportunity. So I know one of the focuses, uh, certainly in the early days at, at Thomson Reuters was around, well, how do you drive quality of contact data and customer data so you can make that buyer experience move? So do you think that's one of the big changes that core customer data, as used to be thought of, master data, et cetera, Getting that to a high quality is now table stakes and the new opportunity is looking at audience data, at product usage data, or do you think that there are 
laggards and leaders across the board where people just really haven't sorted their basic customer data out? I think there's people out there who haven't sorted their basic customer data out. But you can't have one without the other, really, can you? I mean, how can you provide this in-depth experience, sophisticated experience for your customer base if you actually don't know who they are? Uh, <laughs> um, and that's kind of fundamental basics. And surely that's what everybody should be driving towards, at least initially. And it's a building block. It's a foundational piece. Once you've got that right, then everything goes from there. Yeah. Kennedy's raising his eyebrows and... Of course, that's obvious um, territory. So, Is it not obvious? Well, I think the interesting thing is that you meet a surprising number of people who find getting to basic, for me, customer data quality standards is very difficult. You find people who have multiple databases, no clear system of record, no mastery, and they wonder why their data is bad. And you have people who are kind of just throwing their hands up in the air because they can't seem to make any progress. So I guess, yes, it's obvious to people who have spent lots of time on trying to improve data quality, but maybe not to everyone. Well, fair enough. I guess I've been in the game too long, so it's pretty obvious to me. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that it's not really rocket science either. I mean, I know there's some complexity around you know, legacy architectures and how things have been melded together, so to speak. And if you're an acquisition-driven organization, then you're going to have lots of these problems. But once again, what you've got to do is establish a governance framework whose responsibility it is to manage that governance framework, to do proper processes analysis so you understand and you can document the underlying attribution or the key attributes for a core set of data. So everybody in the organization understands that and everybody understands who owns it. Right? A thing that used to drive me nuts at Definitive and TR at the time was IT developers or, uh, or people in other parts of the business coming to me. And the famous one that I always quote, and I won't say who said it, but I want to move Iran to Europe, <laughs> um, um, was one of them. Um, and for whatever reason, that individual believed that they had an absolute right to do this because this is where they worked or this is where their core customer base was. With sanction, I'm not sure how that happened, but anyway, we'll ignore that. But that idea that you can turn around in an organization that's got 46,000 people working in it and these enormous complex architectures with these even more complex data flows across it and think that you can demand that Iran be moved into the EMEA structure and everything that entails, if you think about it from a platform system perspective, that's the kind of thing that's going to hamstring you going forward. <laughs> um, so it's a corporate asset. Yeah? It should be treated like a corporate asset. Just because you happen to know the guy in Iran that you're selling to and you think it might be easier for you to do, be able to achieve something if it, Iran wasn't in wherever it was, Asia, <laughs> Middle East, wherever it was, then the idea that you think you can change the whole organization's data structure to reflect that is crazy, yeah? Yeah, I think it is. And so coming back to that point about um, it not being that difficult, how long do you think... As a concept. It's not that difficult as a concept. Uh, as a concept, okay. How would you go about in a, a company where there's been no data governance, what would you do to get them from chaos to something approaching well-managed? You might cut this. Um, benevolent dictatorship always works. There is, I think what you've got to do is you've got to, you've got to go to the business. It's got to be business-driven, in inverted commas or at least they've got to think it is, and you've got to focus on what's really important. So what is absolutely key to the organization? So at TR, our data was being diluted and destroyed, and the trust associated with people trying to use our data was negligible because of the number of duplicates of customers, for example. And that, there's a myriad of reasons why that happened. 
So the immediate focus for us, we picked one battle and we fought that battle. So that was around deduplication of customer data, of core customer data. So that wasn't easy. And we had to come up with a, a methodology and a plan of how we we're going to do that. But we had that single focus and we knew how we were going to achieve it. And it takes time. In tandem with that or in parallel with that, I had to have the support of the senior executives across the organization, which we didn't always have. But there had to be that, it's almost a bottom-up approach and a top-down approach. It's almost a squeeze, if that makes sense, on the organization as a whole around the story about why this data is so important to us, why we need to get this data to a point where you can trust it. And if you trust it, then you'll embrace it. And then we can start to implement the other elements of what we're trying to achieve, whether it be around validation on the fly, whether it's around getting people to buy into governance because they've seen the result in this initial case, whether it's around moving into other areas or other sets, data sets. So we quite quickly moved into some of the billing data. I mean, not very sexy, very important for the organization and all the benefits that come with that. And the benefits that come with that are huge. It's not just about, well, one of the biggest problems is making sure the invoice gets the individual in question so they can actually pay it. Okay. Now, I think the the percentage of returned invoices and the associated lag in payment that goes with any large organization is astonishing. I think most people would be surprised by how big it is. We had a customer who had an average of 90 days late on invoice payment, which we traced back to being largely down to customer data. Yeah, largely down to customer data. And if you think about the millions and millions of pounds, dollars, yen, whatever it is that's associated with that, there's a significant financial benefit to managing and governing core customer data or core data sets that can support you in the ways. It also supports customer experience enormously. There's nothing worse than calling up and somebody saying, I've got a problem with X. Oh yeah, are you Dave Roberts? No, my name's Kennedy Warwick. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so you're not, you're not at Goldman Sachs. No, I'm not at Goldman Sachs. That kind of thing upsets people. Yeah. And doesn't lead to a good reputational, well, provides tremendous reputational risk. Yeah. I mean, I say this all the time to many, many people. The sophistication of today's customer, be it a B2C or B2B, is significantly higher than it was 10, 15 years ago, as everybody would anticipate. You have to respond. Yeah. If you were fighting the case to a skeptical exec committee, where would you go with your business case? What would your be your kind of first thought? Would it be the reduction in debtor days or would it be customer experience or maybe cost effectiveness from a sales point of view in terms of not having to deal with duplicates and employee SAP point of view? I think tactically, if I was a new guy on the job, I would do the thing that I would be able to do quickest, which would have some impact of some. So you could turn around within three months and go, okay, this is now 75% better. And how would you prove that? Oh, you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to You've got to know where you were when you started and you've got to be able to prove that, you know, through KPIs or through ever, what kind of analytics you're going to provide at the end of it, that that's happened. Okay, so, and again, that's, again, not that difficult, especially around simpler data sets. I agree, actually. I think that's one of the big things that has changed in the last five years, that actually the ability to measure kind of basic stuff like, is, is email address complete for all of my contacts? Yeah, and it becomes really easy, right? Yeah, it's very easy and, it's, and you can automate it almost. Yeah. Or you can. And whether it's around, as I said, invoice generation. I mean, you know, with most executive teams, if you can come up with a dollar figure that you can say, if I reduce invoice returns and reduce your debtor days by 10, it equals X million dollars or whatever it might be, then that's something that is relatively simple for you to be able to prove. 
I think you have a calculator that proves that to a certain degree. Yeah, we did a piece of work, I think, that said that if you reduce your debtor days by, I don't know, maybe 10%, you release X million of of saving from a, um, a liquidity point of view. Yeah. Which was staggering, actually. I didn't yeah. expect that when we when we ran that. I think, yeah, I think, you know, there's a big movement at the moment to monetize data. So how do you generate further income out of what you hold and how you manage it and how it might be used elsewhere or within your own organization to improve sales, whatever it might be. But I think there's also enormous uh, opportunities around cost savings. Okay? And I mean, you know, we did a lot of work around process analysis and especially redesign of key processes. The process generates the data. If the process isn't fit for purpose, is antiquated, is no longer needed, then you're likely to suffer from some data issues associated with it. So if you can redesign, reanalyze your processes, you can probably improve your underlying core data quite quickly as well, or, or at least have an understanding of where it's going wrong. So then you can measure it and start to push it back into the organization as to how to improve it. I think one of our biggest focuses was around, especially towards the end of my time with Thomson Reuters, was around how do we use machine learning and automation to try and remove the human element to certain key basic processes that provide very simple but key data attributes into our underlying order management system, for example. Maybe give us an example of one of them. Oh my God. Okay. So I think we were using a machine learning to remove duplicate or potentially duplicate email addresses for right. users. We were using, trying to automate as best we could the building of customer hierarchies. So who owns who, you know, parent-child relationships, which was enormously important in that organization for financial reasons and for risk reasons. So that was that was one element. And we used, you know, some fairly well-known tools out there to do that. And would you say they were successful? Would, would you take I that approach I would say this again? is quite interesting because I would say it, we would have been enormously successful if it wasn't for legacy architecture. <laughs> so, you know, if you're running underlying platforms that are 20 years old and you're paying specialist organizations to keep the lights on, then there's certain things you can't do with today's technology around automation and machine learning. It just won't happen. So again, it goes back to that underlying architecture. Um, and this, I guess, is where the data teams, the data management teams have got a very, have a very close relationship with the technical teams, with the IT teams, because, you know, the data strategy and the IT strategy in some way has got to be matched up. Yeah. One will lead the other in certain ways. So I think um, you've got to be close to, the IT guys, the technology CTOs, they've got to understand what the data strategy is and then provide the platform to execute that. Yeah. And so interestingly, you touched on monetization there, but you touched on it in terms of how can the organization drive more revenue as a result of better data quality or better understanding of the data within the organization. Is there also, in your view, an opportunity to monetize that data externally to the firm? Or do you think that, that in the age of GDPR, et cetera, that those doors are shutting? I don't think they're shut necessarily. I think you have to be very careful here. Yeah? And you need to understand where the data originated and what the original purpose was, okay, and go from there. Yeah, you know, If the expectation is that this data is used for one very specific process within the organization and... and you know, Matt Chung was not giving his permission to use it for anything else, then you've got to be very careful. And then you've got to weigh up the risk versus the reward, I guess. I would be very risk averse around data at the moment. I think 
one of these days, somebody's going to get their ass kicked. And by somebody, I mean a big organization. They're going to do something stupid and it's going to cost them millions and millions and millions of dollars. Or not, if not billions. If actually. not billions of dollars. Yeah. And I think that uh, that day is coming at some point. I don't know where it will be, but it will happen um, as they always do. And then everybody else, all their peers will then adjust themselves to make sure it never happens to them. Yeah. Which is the way these things happen. So I would be very careful. I think you've got a lot better chance using it internally to kind of drive cross-sell or opportunities within the organization itself. I think you have to be really careful about selling outside your organization. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think it's often misunderstood that monetization of data doesn't mean selling it outside of the organization. Yes. It means making better use of it as an asset within the organization because to some extent it's one of your most important assets. I think one of the other things about it, which I kind of missed, but the point about it is, is that measurement now has become easy because of the tools that are out there to allow you to do it. So I don't have to have some really clever guy to put together, you know, a set of KPIs for me using God knows what. We can use a Tableau or an Alteryx. You got to that. You can, you know, train fairly, I don't, I'm not trying to be dismissive, you know, kind of mid-range staff to help you in these areas. Okay. And then you can p publish them across the organization without any problems whatsoever. It's not like the old days. No. And I think the the frequent publication of a stat saying, right, we have moved the bar on email address by 5% over the last week or six months or whatever. And the ability to show progress is the thing that motivates people most to buy into the idea that it is working and it is worth investing effort into. Otherwise, you get people kind of going, the data is always terrible. I therefore I'm going to ignore all the communications that I get about yeah. how to improve the data. So you have to be able to show progress. And actually the the tech available now that allows you to do that is quite incredible. And also the demise of the need to have, you know, a stack of servers physically somewhere that you have to install. Yeah, data with, the, quality with those software forms, on. when you're having a new one, we get the form and they ask you all kinds of questions. You have no idea what they're talking. Yeah, I mean, to be able to do all of that in the cloud <laughs> using some of the new tech that is available, um, perhaps actually, maybe that's an interesting point. So, you touched on AlterX and, and Tableau. We we like Domo because you can plug it into lots of systems. I think you used Tamer. I used Tamer. They were fantastic for for what we were trying to do, and in many ways helped us get to where we were on our MDM platforms. Where maybe the MDM platform should have done that, but. Uh, it wasn't quite capable. And they've got a tremendous product. And because of the way the product works in terms of teaching off the portal that allows you to, you know, add input to the underlying rules, you get exactly what you want. And it's in the cloud. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, all these tools help you get there. I think the one place where I still don't feel there is a, and this may be vaguely off topic, but anyway, where there's, I haven't come across a tool which has, has the wow factor is around some of the documentation tools around data governance, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we, you know, there's, there's several out there. and They've definitely got better, but I'm still not convinced by any of them, for example. In terms of entity mapping yeah, and entity mapping, and stuff like that? Yeah, process flow, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we use by business optics, which work very well, but I wouldn't say it falls into that particular category. No, I think it's a... It's an enterprise modeling tool. It's yeah. not a specific data governance tool. I haven't, I, th I think a lot of the data governance tools fall too much into it's very difficult. And when we're looking at it from a business problem point of view, actually, what we want to understand is what data is consumed at what steps in the process. Yeah. 
and how does that data evolve as you go through that process and potentially how does that map to systems and actually that's not that complex a thing to do and i think there's some danger that that it's over intellectualized and made into too difficult an exercise when actually if we keep it simple and say right as your lead matures you collect more data about them and this is what data you collect about them through the process yeah that's it it's not difficult right you have 10 attributes of a of a contact if you have more than that then you should probably have words with yourself and it, and the same for an account right what what more how much information do you need to gather the more fields you fit, you give your salespeople or whoever fills it in to fill in the worse your data will get yeah yeah because they can't be bothered well i can't be bothered understand. and they don't understand the reason why yeah because you don't need more than 10 15 fields to describe an account if you do you've got something wrong because all of that data is available elsewhere if you put the right um, tools, tools in place processes in place yeah, yeah i agree with you and you don't because i mean I, I go back to this i said this earlier you know you don't want humans involved as little as possible <laughs> okay because they mess things up or they want to move around to france or you know or <laughs> um What's the other one? Oh, they want to move Ohio, Ohio State University to a non-educational establishment, which I can't think of anything it could be apart from an educational establishment. But um, correctional institution, maybe. Um, it was uh, yeah. So you know these kind of things. Going back to the point you mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, your customers, whoever they are, right? Whether it be enormous financial services organisations, down to a guy you're trying to flog TV packages to at Sky, yeah. Their expectation is that you know who they are and what they watch, et cetera, et cetera. And so they don't want to spend four hours on the phone with you trying to explain to you how they use your product, for example. <laughs> and then getting frustrated and putting the phone down and going to BT or whatever. Because the expectations are much higher. I mean, my two sons who are what one's twenty two and one's nineteen, yeah, they buy clothes online. Okay. And if they have to make more than three clicks, they give up and go somewhere else. Yeah, and that, that's the future of, of how all business is done, right? Yeah. That you, you do expect the person on the other end of the phone to know who you are. I rang someone up the other day and I went through their IVR security and then the guy on the other end of the phone asked me exactly the same questions again. Why did they do that? Well, I asked him that because I was furious and he said, oh, well, you failed validation. I'm like, I just answered you the same questions. So I think it's because their systems are bad and they have terrible customer experience. Oh, right, okay. It could be it. They do that to me as well. Can you please put in your 19-digit code, which, of course, you can't remember. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, exactly the same thing. Uh, but, I, you know, as I said earlier, I think the, um, your customer sophistication, be it whatever it is, level of sophistication, you're going to have to meet them to a certain degree. And if you've got poor quality data, it's not going to happen. So the, one of the biggest mistakes people make, and uh, it's a bugbear of mine, especially in subscription-based products, is the anonymization of the user, okay? So they will say, oh, yeah, you don't have to tell us who you are. And then the analytics and the marketing, the sales guys are furious because they have no information about their underlying customers. But there was a decision made that we're anonymizing usage. So you can't have it both ways. <laughs> yeah. No, you can't. And then also when that person rings up and says, hi, I'm Joe Bloggs, the guy on the other end goes, Good. Uh, yes, I don't know who you are because we've decided not to collect any information about our end users. And this is where I think organizations have to be a little firmer and braver. I think it's unacceptable for a large organization, say a financial services or a bank, turn around and say, yes, we want to use your product, but we want to anonymize it. 
So you can't see who's using it within the bank, for example, and you won't get any information. And then be upset by customer service levels or that they are dictating to you so you actually can't follow through on your strategy and your underlying data strategy around these products. Yeah. So you need to be firm and turn around and say, surely in today's day and age, we're going to collect, we can put all kinds of safeguards in place to make sure it doesn't go anywhere else. It doesn't get seen by the wrong people. Yeah. But you can't, I don't think you can really dictate to an organization about how they collect data about how you use a product when in most cases it's being used to help you use the product. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I can see a number of reasons why large financial institutions in particular would be wary of sharing that data and the same possibly for legal institutions. Yes, yeah. and absolutely. And they're very obvious, yeah? But yeah. you need to put safeguards in place to make sure that that data remains where it's supposed to be and only seen by those who are supposed to see it, yeah? Not go, okay, we won't take any information at all. Well, I guess there are some commercial imperatives that make people um, want to do something. That may well be the case, but sometimes you have to be a little bit braver. So, two last questions. Over the last 10 years of dealing with customer data, what's been your biggest success? Biggest success? I think my biggest success has been getting data to the top of the discussion around whether or not they can be successful. So by managing to improve the, the quality of the data, the business started to rely more on the data. So therefore that drove demand to improve, yet further improve data. I think that was the biggest success. I think we managed to put data in the middle of the as an asset within the organization. So you mean you you managed to get people to trust the data and therefore to use it as a de the decision-making tool that it should be? Exactly. Well, Paul, well, well, I could have said that. You should have said that. I should have said that, yeah. Um, Do you want yes, to have another that's exactly what it was. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. No, I think that was the biggest success. I think that we managed to become a trusted source for the, for the business to make business decisions. So if you can get data to be a trusted source for the business to make decisions from... What's the next big thing? How do you augment that so they can make even better decisions? And by augment, do you mean in the scope of data or incorporating external data? Or It could be either. Yeah, it could be either. Um, I think the simpler thing to look at is, you know, augmenting it with greater segmentation data that can be trusted. So whether that's adding, you know, I don't know what it might be. You know, it could be product data it could be usage data it could be myriad of different things you could add um, permanent ids so you can track individuals as they move around those kind of things that would be quite interesting wouldn't it because actually that is one of the big gaps in b2b at the moment that your users move and your and your customers move between different organizations yeah, this is interesting because i want to know your thoughts on this so contact mastering everybody gets customer mastering everybody gets product mastering you can argue the wiser one for as to whether the platforms are a fit for purpose, or you can actually get your bang for your buck out of it. And there's you know many different answers to that. But content mastering, and I, I'm a skeptic about content mastering, and I'll give you two reasons why. One is the population constantly churns, okay? And the only people, and you can play a little bit of catch up, yeah? But you, there's going to be a lag. And the other element of it is is that the contacts or those important individuals, the best, they're the best people to manage their own data. So how do you do that? You can buy lists, you can go on LinkedIn, you can scrape wherever the hell you want. Still can't guarantee the quality of it, okay? So surely the future is, how do you get those individuals to engage with you to provide you with the information? Okay, so firstly, 
contact mastering of all contacts that you ever touch within an organization, I think is fundamentally a waste of time. So I doubt you can ever get the full information about all of the users of, I don't know, or all the people you touch within the, within the process. I think the people, the decision makers and the sales contacts and the people you're sending, you've got strong relationships with and that you have a personal network with are the people that you have a chance of keeping that information. I haven't seen anyone be very successful about it. And also, I think there's an interesting privacy point actually between a relatively detailed level. But if you look at someone's record within a CRM and you see their history with one company and all the activities associated with that, and then that person moves to another company, there's an interesting privacy point about how you deal with that. Because yep. actually, if you move the person, you have to do something about their historic activities because otherwise you're potentially breaching confidence by moving their history of commercial deals to a different region, et cetera. Mm. So that's quite interesting on its own. So potentially you need a separate kind of entity to represent the person from the role they had at a particular company, yeah. which starts to get just a bit horrible. But then the other thing is that one of the most interesting blockchain things that we've come across has been the idea of people starting to take ownership of their own data and saying, actually, I authorize organization X to have this particular piece of data. And that actually plays to the idea you were suggesting there, where I can say that I'm happy for Clarisys or for Microsoft to have access to my business profile of data. And I'm happy for them to subscribe to that because actually, as long as I've got my data privacy rules ticked, which means that they're not allowed to contact me unless I contact them, yeah. then that's perfectly fine. And actually, that's a good thing because they don't hold multiple copies of me. There's no risk of them calling me in the wrong place. They are going to have to adhere to data privacy because they've subscribed to that. So I think potentially the power to do a proper solution is out there. Now, whether LinkedIn or Microsoft or I think the firm are called Evanim or Sovereign are going to be able to do that is another question it would it's going to require quite a lot of work on everyone's part to make that work but that is very similar to the personal identity idea that needs to happen in order for some of the kyc aspects that make daily life quite frustrating work properly so i think that is where the market should go to the fact that you or i own our own personal information and it's stored somewhere in a variety of solutions probably that you can choose yourself depending on what you want from them and that then you provide permission to other people to use it and maybe eventually you know you you say to facebook right actually i'll give you permission to use this but i want to cut off whatever profits you make from it on the other yeah. side and i think that's the way it's going to go the information held about kennedy warwick or matt chung is their information yes <laughs> and yours to disseminate as you see fit yeah i think that is the way it's going to go so there we go Thank you very much, Kennedy, for a very informative conversation on data, leaving on a note of personal sovereignty over your own data. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Nevermind the Penguins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcasting app or site. We would love your feedback, so please leave a review or drop us an email at podcast at And for more information about us, visit our website, claricis.com. 